it's about finding those things for individually that that can take your mind and and put you in a very present state. And those can be different things for different people. But right now, at least in my life, it's a forcing function. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Inspired, the show about people who create opportunity for themselves. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen, and that was Noah Berkson, a venture capitalist out of Iowa City, Iowa. Noah has vast experience in the VC space. We talked about how Noah built his business, sold his business along with his partners, forcing functions to be more present, and some venture capital 101. Noah is constantly finding ways to push his own boundaries, whether it's through physical activity and running an Ironman, but also making sure that he finds time to develop his relationships. Noah is one of the few people in my life that challenged me to level up, and I'm glad I had the chance to introduce him to you. So I hope you enjoy this one, and if you like what you hear, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. All right, let's get to it. Please welcome to the show my friend, Noah Berkson. We are here with an awesome friend of mine, someone that has made sure I'm optimizing my life to the best of my ability, holding me accountable, and knows how to have a good time, whatever he is. If it's in this country or the next, ladies and gentlemen, Noah Berkson, welcome to the show, man. Awesome to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Dude, it's my pleasure. I wanted to bring Noah on the show because it's kind of funny how we met. We hit it off immediately once we got the chance to hang out. And I think I, I uh, originally thought you were the founder of, uh, of like an athletic wear brand that I really <laughs> liked. And I was like, that's so cool. I got to reach out to this guy. And then you're like, literally no affiliation. I just really like their clothes. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, man, I'm like in the Bronx. I'm not <laughs> doing that. But Noah is in venture capital and he's pretty good at it from what I understand. And I wanted to bring him on the show to educate us a bit and learn more about what he does, see how we can all manage our personal finance a bit better. It's also important to preface none of this is financial advice by any means. It's more so an introductory opportunity to get to know someone who's got vast experience in the space. So Noah, please tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from and how you got to where you are. Yeah, I, I grew up in Iowa City, Iowa, which many people think is Ohio, but grew up, so I grew up in the Midwest. I went to the University of Iowa. I ended up starting a business in college that, that took me to Chicago, uh, which was great. Totally different environment that I was in. Realized that kind of coming from a small town that I really belonged in the big city. And it, it gave me a ton of energy and have, have built a number of technology businesses. Uh, most recently had a software staffing company and then also a venture fund that we started. Uh, we, were, we had a lot of excess cash flow off of our business that we built. Uh, we were looking to invest that. Uh, what we realized is having been entrepreneurs, we said, hey, we're staffing. We staffed engineers, but we're staffing engineers for a lot of really interesting companies. Like, why don't we start investing in them? And uh, we started doing that. I made uh, 23 investments through that vehicle. Ended up selling both our staffing business and also the fund studio to a single family office in the financial services space. We're now helping run that and having, having a lot of fun doing it. That's pretty recent. We sold our staffing business the end of last year. 
and then the uh, the fund and studio uh, a couple months ago. Congratulations on that. I know that was a big move, obviously well-deserved, and I'm sure it took a long time to get to that point. But when it comes to who you are and a little bit about what you're into, why don't you talk to us about some of the things that make Noah tick? I think this would have been, you know, 2019, I realized that I'd never taken a vacation, literally never taken a vacation. I'd maybe traveled a little bit throughout the U.S. I think I'd been to Mexico, but just hadn't traveled and been so focused on work and heads down that I realized that I, you know, I just missed a lot of life. Um, in one regard, I was, I was living, I was building businesses, but I was so consumed by that. And it had been really my whole identity. That's who I was. I was so tied up in it and I just couldn't get away from it. And so in 2019, I I took the opportunity to travel and travel for the whole year. I traveled for 300 and maybe 20 days of the year or something like that. Visited 25 countries, got to really just live life and experience life and, you know, still working along the way, still building a business. But it's funny because I realized that just as I'm looking back, I was building our staffing business and it's like, wow, you can, you know, travel the world and build a business at the same time. And you can be really successful doing it and debatably more successful than I was in other ventures when I was in the same place every day, you know, working more hours, being more focused on it. So, you know, I think there was just a, an imbalance where I just wasn't getting a lot of energy elsewhere. And the traveling really, you know, it stimulates your mind, you're meeting new people, you're always in new environments, you're constantly having to adjust and be uncomfortable and kind of find peace with that. And so, that was that was really my uh, my like foray out into the world or the the broader world. It's a big a big part of my identity now. I you know it's it's COVID hurt that a little bit, but you know I'm trying to visit like ten new countries a year, so that's always a high priority. A really high emphasis on spending time with friends and just creating you know creating experiences with friends. I, I think every month we're probably doing two trips at least with friends uh, somewhere like for a weekend, whether it's for a couple of days, but just putting a big emphasis on just fostering relationships and maintaining relationships. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's really easy to let relationships kind of fade and fizzle out. Everyone gets busier. Everyone has excuses, but just really been putting a lot of time and effort into making sure that I'm doing that. I'm very active, love to, it was CrossFit for, for a long time, got into some of the more like endurance stuff, for, for a quick second prior to COVID, which was like Ironman and those type of things, doing some bike, you know, do bike races occasionally, but just anything to keep active, something that's a challenge, something that, you know, takes you out of your normal element, gives you some perspective. And typically for me, that, that perspective needs to be uh, just that I, I need some, I need something that's super challenging and just kicks my butt and like kicks my ego down. I think it's really easy to, you know, as you have some success to, create an ego and let that get the best of you. And I think I constantly need to be knocked down a bit and those things absolutely humble you. So that's, I really enjoy that. We've hung out a few times and you're definitely someone who knows how to have a healthy, for lack of a better way of putting it balance. That word gets overused a lot in this day and age. I find that certain habits and regimens feed in, to my performance and whether it's maintaining relationships, like you were saying, developing new ones and working towards being a better version of yourself. How do you find that those particular 
components that you mentioned feed into your performance now? Is it with these relationships, it allows you to step away from work and therefore you can come back with more clarity? Or how do you really go about assessing? I think stepping away from things is really important and just being able to take your mind off it. I can't speak for other people, but you know, a lot of, I would say a lot of other entrepreneurs I know, your mind is never off of work. It doesn't matter what you're doing, where you are, what day of the week it is, you know, what time it is. It's like, I go to sleep thinking about work. First thing I do when I wake up is I grab my phone and, you know, viciously go through my email, like what fires, what needs to get put out right now, what needs to get addressed. Stuff. I think a lot of people are in just a constant state of stress and, you know, my, myself included. And so it's how do you step away from things and find things that really take your mind, like they force your mind off of doing what you're doing. For me, even with, let's say, you know, being active or workouts, you need something just of like the most high intensity that could be CrossFit or whatever it is that like your mind really can't think about it. Cause I, oh, I'm going to go for a run to clear my head. And I'm like, well, the whole time I'm running, I'm just thinking about work. And then I'm like, oh, I got to send that email. I'm like, maybe I should just, you know, I'm not running that fast. Can I send that email while I'm running and like keep a pace? And so you just constantly, your mind is on this thing. So it's, you know, for me, it's been finding things that completely for, forcing functions. I think forcing functions are a really good thing. And snowboarding is something I, I got into pretty heavily the last maybe two, three years, because I find when I'm doing that, my mind is completely off of whatever I'm doing with work, right? It's like, and I'm not great at snowboarding. And, you know, I like to just go pick, like, here's the hardest hills to go down, right? Here's the double black diamonds, because it's just, you know, I'm completely there. I'm present. And I think it's hard to be present and it's, it's a, it's just a challenge at any moment to like truly be present. You know, I, I think about my day and I'm sitting on a call, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to somebody, but then I'm also responding to Slack messages and I'm also texting somebody and I'm also getting an email and I'm also scheduling a meeting and, you know, you're trying to do that for efficiency, but it's like in a few moments, are you really like, are you just like present and there? And so I think it's, it's about finding those things for individually that, that can take your mind and, and uh, put you in a very present state. And those can be different things for different people. But for me, it's very much a, right now, at least in my life, it's a forcing function. I'm so happy you brought up presence because it's a consistent theme on this show. Absolute immersion into whatever task it is you're doing one at a time, pushing yourself to be in a state of, you know, why is any conversation so good or any amazing experience you've ever had, it's because you're completely and utterly immersed in it. You don't have any space to dedicate towards anything else because you just see what's right in front of you, right? Be where your feet are, as they say. So kind of going off of something you were talking about earlier, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, you had a staffing business. So before we get into Venture Capital 101 with our expert here today, can you tell us a bit about what your staffing business is how you came up with the concept and what led to its ultimate sale? Yeah, my um, the first business I ever uh, got into in college was a, a software development company. And so basically, people would pay us to build software for them. Um, what I what I realized through that experience is that that was in one regard could be a great business, but dealing with things that are subjective, project based, milestone based those type of things as a business owner, you do not want to be in that business. Um, it's just complicated. Uh, pricing is hard. Finishing projects is hard because there's a lot of like, as much as you can contractually do, a lot of things are up to, they're subjective. Um, and so 
when we started the staffing business, what we realized is that one, I guess there were a few tailwinds, right? Um, there are not enough software engineers in the US. Like hands down, you cannot, it's very hard and it's a very competitive market. And even people that are starting out as a software engineer are in very, very high demand, even though they really have no idea what they're doing. Like people that have just graduated college and you know did some type of computer science degree. So that was, that was one big factor of it. And you have people all over the world in other countries that have a plethora of software engineers and have really strong STEM and computer science programs, and they don't get opportunities because they're not in the US and companies aren't super receptive. They're like, we want someone that comes into an office. And I was like, well, does it matter that much anymore? You know, somebody, you need to give them requirements for this. They need to work on this. But for a lot of like kind of core things like that, I'm, I don't really see the need. And so we looked in, in a few different markets. Uh, the first was Asia and in Vietnam specifically, where it's just an abundance of really, really talented software engineers. And we had the ability to start hiring people in Vietnam and staffing them to companies in the U.S. to just work full-time for companies in the U.S. And we started there, started to expand outwards. As we said, hey, we need to increase the talent pool. You also just don't want kind of risk and risk, lo like locational risk in the sense that Ukraine, for instance, is it's a huge hub for software engineers. A lot of companies in the U.S. depend on Ukraine and a lot of their teams are based there. And with everything that just happened, there's a lot of companies reaching out right now saying, hey, our whole team is based there. Like, do you, you know, can you help us? And so understanding, you know, just having locational risk. So then we looked in other places. Argentina was a, a great country that had very similar market dynamics. Colombia and so on and so forth. I think we're in 17 countries now. And so we've, we've expanded that pretty rapidly. But, you know, we, you realize that it's, it's really a trifecta because you have companies in the U.S. and some in Europe that find, that get software engineers. Typically, they're, they're less than or at market price of what people in the U.S. are paying and what companies are paying in the U.S. You have the software engineers that otherwise wouldn't have opportunities because, you know, in, you know, where they, where they live, where they grew up, like there just aren't that many companies that can be hiring, right? There's not tons of large, large companies compared to the total amount of software engineers to hire them. So they get opportunities to make a lot more money than they could where they live. They're able to work from home. They're able to have, you know, ultimate flexibility and really enjoy that, like, you know, U.S. work, work uh, environment that we have that, you know, a lot of other countries are, are much uh, stricter. It's not so much uh, unlimited PTO and, you know, snacks and just fun at the office. It's like you get here and you work and then you go home and you do this again. And there's a really good business to be had in doing it. And so, you know, we've been able to create a really incredible culture, been able to get to hear people probably on a, I don't know, weekly, bi-weekly basis that we'll do a check-in with and are like, this changed my life. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Like I never would have been able to do this without it. I just bought a house, you know, that I wouldn't have been able to buy without this opportunity. And it's got to move my family here, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been super fulfilling and it's a good business. So yeah, that's, I think that's all you can ask for. Part of this whole idea of building a business that's separate from getting into venture capital, right? It is. So you're in venture capital though, right? I, I am. There's a, there's an intersection. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So having been, I mean, just having been an entrepreneur for a long time, you build up a found, you build up a network of other entrepreneurs, people that are starting companies, raising money. Our staffing business though really got us into the space because what was happening is we're saying, hey, 
we're, we're making, we're making good money. We need somewhere to place that money. Like, what are we going to do with it? We got to invest it. We were reinvesting in the business enough that it was growing pretty substantially. So it was like, okay, we don't need to really put too much more money in the business. Where else can we place it? And we were kind of looking all over and we're like, well, from a, from a venture perspective, we have all these startups that are taking engineers from us that like we staff engineers to, and those startups are pretty interesting. And we also have a unique view into those startups because we have people working for them. So we actually know what's going on more than any outside person or investor would. And so we saw that as a, as a really good opportunity to start investing in those companies. And I'm glad that we did it in the fashion we did. We decided we just used our own capital. So we didn't take outside capital to do it. And we were able to learn a lot of lessons. I think, yeah, I think anything that I do, just really like from a, from a moral standpoint, anything I'm going to do, I want to risk, I want to make mistakes first with you know, myself, my own money before taking other people's and just kind of doing trial and error. So we're able to do that, able to invest in, I mean, <laughs> it's just every industry. We invested in health tech and fintech and cannabis tech and consumer tech and sports tech and gambling tech. And we were just real in ag tech. We were able to really try our hand at a lot of things and say, hey, this really fascinates me. Like, let's get into this. But I think what I realized from that experience is you learn a lot, which is, which is great. So you know a lot about, you know a little about a lot of industries, but you know, you're, uh, you're like, you know, you're a mile wide and an inch deep on each of them, which doesn't really make you a great investor, right? I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of luck right now with investors, surely because of the market, how much money is getting poured in. There's a lot of markups happening. And I think what I realized is that I really wanted to focus on one vertical and one vertical only, and just be an expert in that vertical and be able to really be hands-on and provide value. Because what we were doing to a degree, right? We're staffing them engineers. We can provide value in that way. That's amazing. We can help them build a team, save a bunch of money, move faster. That's great. But if we could pair that with one vertical that we could also find other value adds in, then that would make us really good investors. And that's, you know, that's what really led to the, to the acquisition and what we're doing now, which is we're, uh, we're a fintech fund. We have an ecosystem of, uh, of financial service companies and assets infrastructure, infrastructure, banking, lending, a bunch of other core businesses around that. So we can invest in companies. We can plug them into our infrastructure that we have. We can save the money. We can speed, we can speed up time to market and we can ultimately help dictate their outcomes, which is something we couldn't do before. And so I think for me, I, I don't think there's a better spot to be as an investor because you have complete knowledge of what's happening in the business. You understand the industry fully. You understand what's going to happen. So, you know, just for example, right? We have a we own a we own a bank. Uh, we have a neo bank, and so there's a, like these things called neo banks. Uh, a lot of them are popping up in fintech. They're becoming very popular. Uh, and you know, neo banks are basically you know digital bank for X bank for the underserved bank. You know, bank for uh, children. You know that are building. You know that you want to teach financial. You know habits or literacy to banking for women, banking for, you know, whatever. Um, but a lot of, you have a lot of investors that pour into these neobanks, but like, have you ever owned a bank before? Do you understand how a bank operates? Do you understand all the things that happen from a compliance standpoint, the scalability of certain things, the cost of certain things? Probably not, but we own a bank. So we know that. So we can tell you, 
hey, we know that this model that you're looking at, that's eh, not really going to work, or you're going to have to do this. So, so that's great. There's a lot of robo-advisors out there in the fintech space, a bunch of platforms for investments that help you find investments. We own one of those. So we, we know the space and we know the space really well. And you know, from that perspective, I think that's super gratifying and just gives you a lot more confidence in everything you're investing in. Because you know, as, I look at, as I look at the portfolio that, that we invested in, looks amazing, right? Like it looks great, but who knows? And, and that's what I say uh, when people ask about a lot of the companies. I'm like, I don't know. But like, it looks great on paper. We looked like we look like we're really smart investors, but that could also go to zero. With what we're doing, what we're doing now is like, I have complete confidence in this. I know exactly where this is going. And that I think is the difference. Let's back up. What is venture capital? Venture capital, I think from the, from the start is trying to invest in companies pre-revenue. I guess as you look at like the earliest stage of it is trying to fund companies from the beginning that have exponential opportunity to grow in value. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around VC? There are a lot of people that will reach out just about like, how do I get into VC? You're in venture capital, like you must be so rich. And it's super funny. Like it's just the biggest misconception. There's a I think there's a lot of, and there's, I think there's a lot of this today, not just in venture capital, but, but in other industries where they see people and they just assume like, oh, that must be so easy. And like, you know, you can just make so much money so quickly and, you know, you don't really have to put in the work. And I think that's just what people miss. Venture capital is not a place to go to get, to get rich. Like it's, that's not the space, at least in the short term, in the long term. Sure. You have the opportunity to, but certainly, certainly there's no, uh, there's no, you know, there's no high percentage chance that you're going to, you know, you're going to be, you know, firms make money on, you know, while you're, while you're working in a firm, it's going to take you 10 years to do pretty well or to start doing well. Um, typically you're underpaid for being in the space because funds and venture, they live off management fees. Everything you're investing in is long, is long winded. So it's, you know, five years, seven years, 10 years until you're going to see any liquidity. So you, you take money off these management fees, but the management fees aren't a lot and they're typically split between a large number of people depending on the fund size. So uh, it's just definitely not an industry to get into to like, I can make so much money getting into this. Like, no, I would go start a business. I would go, you know, take a, take a normal job or career where you can just compound and, you know, make money year over year where venture, you definitely don't have that uh, guaranteed outcome. Like you said, a lot of people reach out to you. So when you're evaluating a potential investment, are you more of a I'm betting on the person type of approach or is it the idea mix of both case by case? I would say, I would say it's the, I mean, it's the person first and foremost, that's the first piece that matters. Like I look at the person almost before I look at the idea because at least you look at the venture burst kind of startup space, like every company pivots. There are very few companies that set out with an idea that actually their business is that idea that they started with. Typically they pivot, they realize, oh, there's actually this opportunity tangential to what I set out to do before, but that actually wasn't the right business model. That actually wasn't the right customer. Um, so I think that changes. I think from the founder perspective, <laughs> there's just a lot of red flags. I would say for me, one of the biggest ones is what are you what are you risking right now and like what's on the line 
because at least what I, what I know from the space is venture or just starting a company is hard. Like it is a grind and it's miserable. It is not fun. Like it's super glorified. It's glorified today. Everyone's like, Oh my God, I wish I had a startup. And I'm like, no, you don't. It's not fun. You typically like you isolate yourself from, you know, most other people, you spend all of your time stressed and like, it's, it's not as fulfilling. It can be fulfilling right in the end if it works out, but it's typically not as fulfilling. So what I want to know is people have grit and grit is probably the biggest thing to me. And so it's like, what do you have on the line if this fails? Like, what are you doing? So big turnoff is someone will say, you know, I have this idea and, you know, once I raise money, I'll leave my job to do it full time. And I'm like, so if you don't raise money, like you don't believe in it enough to just go do it if you don't believe it enough, like, why would I believe in this enough that, you know, you're not willing to leave your job for it. But like, if, you know, if you had, you know, the same salary you're making or whatever, then you would, you know, I think a lot of times for me, I'm like, someone's like, Hey, I took out a, you know, a second mortgage in my home to fund this business. You know, we moved out of our house. We're living in a, you know, we're living in an apartment now. We, you know, there's sacrifice. There's something, there's grit. And I think that was really challenging for me when I came to California and going from Iowa, then to Chicago to California, where you start to see a lot of deal flow or a lot of founders that just are, are very well off or kind of come from a lot of money. And for me, I was like, it's just a challenging one. Cause I'm like, what's your worst case scenario here? If this fails, not much, your life is fine. It doesn't really change things. And so I, I think I find that, I find that very challenging. Other than that, it's, you know, are people, are they, are they honest and transparent with you? And I think a lot of times what you'll see is in initial conversations, you'll just hear things that you'll be like, you said this last time, like you said this in our first call, but then you said this here, like, which is it? They're just little things that I'm like, I want to make sure that you're completely honest and transparent up front because the investor founder dynamic is, is super important. I mean, it's a, uh, there's like a joke in the venture world that like, you know, the average, the average marriage lasts like eight years and the average, uh, the average venture relationship is like 10 years because like the longevity from, um, from uh, start to finish. And so it's like, you're really entering into a marriage and you just need to make sure that the, the person that you're doing that with is going to be open and honest with you. And then the other, there's, you know, and then the other things, which is, Hey, does the business make sense? You know, is it the right people? Is it the right motivation? Are you in this because you really want to solve this problem? Or are you in this because you were looking for a problem to solve because you wanted to go start a business? And in those cases, like, I just want to know that you're so passionate about whatever you're doing that you're not going to quit. When things get rough and they'll inevitably be very rough, like it, it always happens. There are not, there's, you know, you see the three startups that's like, oh, they went from zero to worth a billion dollars in three months. And, you know, that's great. But, you know, for the vast majority, for the other 99.9%, that's not going to happen. And it's going to be just a struggle day in, day out. In terms of this whole idea of unicorns, I'll ask you to please define what a unicorn is for the audience. And how do you evaluate companies when there's no comparable market? Is that something you kind of stay away from? Or are you open to the right idea? How do you approach those types of situations? Uh, so a, a unicorn, uh, just for the audience, is a company that's valued at a billion dollars or more. Um, it's become a lot more prevalent in the last, let's say, three years, where you have a lot of startups that become that get that valuation rather quickly. It's 
nine times out of 10, not based on really, really much at all, factually. It's not based on revenue. It's not based on traction to, in the vast majority of cases, but it's, we think this company could be so big. So we're willing to bet on it at a very large number because we were willing to, you know, we're willing to say it's worth a billion dollars today, even though it isn't because we think it could be worth a hundred billion dollars three years from now. So that, that is a, that is a unicorn. As for how we discern investments in industries that there's really not comparables for, I think we're open to risk. And, you know, that is venture. Venture is risk and people like that. It's looking at, you know, we, an example, we started a company in the farmland leasing and sales space. There was nothing like it in the industry. Huge risk, but also high reward. Because if you win, you win the industry, right? So if you have, if you have a clear line as in like, hey, this might not work, but can we test something out? See if, you know, directionally this makes sense do kind of like the, the lowest form of product market fit and the validation of the market, then we're all for it. Will we take a big bet on a company early that you know hasn't proven a model in the industry? Absolutely not. It's not easy trying to figure out where that sweet spot is for all this. They say that like, I don't know, there've been studies done with, right? That like mice that like pick stocks that like just walk over like stock names and uh, compared to, you know, professional fund managers and mice typically outperform those <laughs> right in the stocks they pick. I think I've seen that. I think, you know, I think venture can be very, I think venture can be very similar where a lot of times, at least today, I feel like it's not even how smart an investor you are, but rather the outcomes that you can dictate. And an example of what I'm saying is you see a lot of the the big funds that are Today are, you know, you look at it as these are the top tier venture funds. Like these are the people you want to raise from. And a lot of it, it's a very, like, it's a sheep, it's a very sheep mentality industry where people are like, oh, well, I saw this firm invest. So there's firms that like, you know, it's just kind of like a known thing. Like, oh, once they invest, you're going to triple your valuation immediately. Like it makes you three times as valuable because we saw those people validate it. And so it's a lot of, you're not taking risk because you're like, oh, well, if I'm wrong about this all the top people in the industry thought that they're wrong too. They thought this was right. It's kind of like when, you know, it's kind of like when uh, companies hire like a McKinsey and it's really like, it's just for them, it's just kind of protection, you know, for a CEO of a company when they bring in McKinsey, because like if what they do is wrong, it's like, well, McKinsey said that this was a good idea. So, and they came in and look at their name. So it's just like that stamp of approval. And so I think there's a lot of that going on in venture right now. And um, people can dictate outcomes because you see that just the power of a lot of the, the larger funds that they have on the industry. And it's like, they have those relationships to make companies successful and they will make those companies successful. So it doesn't matter if the company isn't doing incredibly well, like they have the relationships to say, Hey, X company CEO that I know, you really need to buy this company. This would be a great fit in your you know public company that, you know, you can, you can spend at least whatever our markup is to buy it. And so there's a lot of that going on and, you know, Hey, it's smart. Like it's a hack, you know, it works. I appreciate it in one regard, but I think also people just need to be weary of that because these stamps of approval, inevitably those people are become wrong. Right. And, you know, they, they have been right more than they've been wrong to get where they are. But I think there's just too much validation put in those things. You see just people tout that it's kind of like the, in a lot of decks that you see or like pitch decks, it's like the first thing people lead with is like, I went to Harvard and I'm like, that's great. But like that, you know, it's not a valid, 
on LinkedIn, X people will go like X Uber, X Amazon, X Netflix, whatever that is. And I'm like, that doesn't validate anything for me. Like if you're employee number two at Uber, sure. But like you were employee 3,600. Why, like, why does that validate things? So I think there's just a lot of, a lot of kind of misleading things that are happening that the average person would just be unaware of. Do you think it's easier to get funding today slash evaluation today? Funding at a fair valuation, let's say. It depends who the fair valuation is for. Debatably, like right now, I mean, there's a little bit of uncertainty, but it's been the best time to be a founder ever. I just met with a firm the other day, a couple of days ago, and I was asking just like their target valuation they want to get in at, and they're like 12 million. Like that's always a fair, you know, for founders, like starting a company, like we put in money at a $12 million valuation. And I'm like, you're giving a company, a t- you know, granted, it's not really the valuation of the company, but for that investment, it is. So they'll do something like called a convertible note where they'll have a cap. Let's say the cap is 12 million. So based on whatever the next round is, they'll convert, you know, at a, at a maximum of 12 million. And so there's a lot of, for a founder, it's great. Like you can start a company and you can have something that's figuratively on paper worth a lot, but it just doesn't matter because it's not liquid. Right. And so there's a lot of people right now that like, you know, they're, they're paper billionaires, but you have no liquidity. So it's great that your startup is valued at a billion dollars or, you know, what you're doing, you have shares that are worth a hundred million dollars, but it's like until that company sells or goes public, those are worthless. And typically that's going to be a very long time. And the chances that it will go to zero are higher than it will go to, uh, to an IPO or, or be purchased. I sound super pessimistic. No, I think it's experiential, man. You're talking to so many people on a daily basis that you get not jaded by the process, just informed. And through that experience, you're making more informed decisions because someone's walking into your office saying, oh, I'm X everything and therefore you should invest in me because it's a bet on the founder mentality here in this area of the world. So in order to make a billion, I brought you this superficial brand name and I'm piggybacking off someone else's success in order to invest in my superficial idea. And I want to walk away to tell my friends that you fell for my scheme. It's tough. It's why very well put. (laughs) I mean, that's why so many people are so skeptical about hedge funds or anything in finance. It gets tough to trust markets. Why? Because certain things are out of our control. And when things are out of our control, we don't know where to place our energy. Right. So it's a it's a betting game. It's a betting game because no one knows no one knows the market. No one can you know, no one controls it, contrary to, you know, I think what (laughs) some people believe, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a betting game. And as long as you're right more than you're wrong, hey, it's great, but you'll see how long it lasts. Having a vision, I feel like is very important when it comes to any type of monetary slash financial type venture. What's your vision, man? Where do you see things going for you? I've thought a lot about this. I, I love the challenge. I need challenge and I need chaos. I need kind of organized chaos in my life. So it's funny because I'll constantly be like, I'm too busy. I like, I don't have, I don't know why I'm putting more things on my plate. But the second I have any time at all, just have free time. Like, what am I doing with my life? I'm just wasting my time. What's <laughs> going on? So I, uh, 
I really, I really need that challenge. So like, no matter, you know, no matter what I do, like it'll be business after business after business. I really enjoy like the energy that I get from starting something and, and building something like being able to start something from scratch, build something from scratch, you know, see something other people, you know, haven't, I think that's, that's what I care about. And I think I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder and I think I always have, I was a terrible student growing up, horrid, like horrendous student had terrible ADHD, like just did not put the effort into, uh, into school. And there was a particular instance where my seventh grade English teacher had in my English and social studies, there were like, they were, the rooms were attached and there's like this little divider wall that you'd like pull back and forth. You'd go between their classes. And it was seventh grade and there was a parent teacher conference and they asked if I would join with my mom to go to this conference. And I was like, that's weird. Like that probably isn't good. <laughs> Why am I going to this? <laughs> and so I show up, I show up with my mom and I'm already like, Oh God, this is not going to be good. And they proceed to tell her that at the rate I'm going, I'm going to end up in prison. And, uh, wow. you know, I, I talked, that's kind of the class clown, but I think that really put this chip on my shoulder from when they said that. And I was like, I am not. And uh, for some reason, I think like in the, subliminally in the back of my mind, I've like been trying to prove to people that like, no, that's, you know, that's not me. And which is, you know, totally immature and probably something I still, you know, I still think about a little bit, but I think there's something to, there's something to the motivation that comes kind of being bet against. And I find that I kind of thrive off of it. it may not be completely healthy, but you know, it's something that's a feeder and a, it gives gives me energy and it's just i don't know it's a moment i i reflect on often i love that man i think it's so important in order to know where you're going you got to know where you came from and constantly having appreciation for your roots is a big part of what leads and what has clearly led to your success when i was applying to colleges i remember we had this ivy league college counselor best in the business but me not so much I was in the same tier as you man I didn't really focus on school I didn't put my energy there just trying to fit in and it wasn't really working too hot on the social or academic scales and eventually I kind of got sat down and was in a similar position where I was asked to leave one school and then I go to public school and when it came time to apply to colleges and I told my college counselor where I wanted to go because my guidance counselor had recommended Muhlenberg College to me, I remember sitting down with my parents in this private session with this college counselor that we were paying for. I told her the name. She laughed so audibly in front of my parents and then proceeded to say, your family is going to have to buy a building if you want to get into that school. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, fast forward. We didn't have to buy a building. It ended up working out. <laughs> yeah. The story of how I got into a college, how I got into college is for another episode. Maybe one day I'll bring on the Dean of admissions at, uh, at Muhlenberg for that one. Cause that was definitely a conversation to remember. But it's those kind. It's that moment that I also reflect on, man. Because a big part of it now, when you mentioned ADHD, it's it's almost so frustrating that really all they had to do was put us in a position to get our energy out 
so we could just like focus on certain tasks, like again, getting super present. And it comes to that notion where what's ADD, seeing things all over the place, can't focus on any one particular task. Once you're engaged in one thing, you get into that flow, but it takes that absolute focus. They don't realize it's about not necessarily just eliminating distractions, but like you said, forcing function, doing things that require that immediate presence. So, Noah, I want to ask you, if you're to build a company today, and I want you to kind of think of yourself on the other side of all this, what would your ideal startup financing look like? Ideal startup financing at this point would be self-financing. I think venture capital is, is very needed, but I think being in a position where you can finance a company yourself allows you to build a company in a very different way from the perspective of, you know, today, if being in venture, if I invest in a company, I expect that growth to be very fast. I expect them to be spending a lot, spending as much as possible, right, to grow, kind of growth at all costs. But I think in some regards, um, you know, in the venture landscape today, that's been, that's been necessary and it's been justified and companies have been able to spend for growth, optimize for growth continue to raise money pretty rapidly and increase valuation pretty rapidly and, and exit out uh, at record numbers. Uh, I think right now you see the markets have maybe corrected or taken a little bit of a, a hiatus from the highs that we've seen. And I think not having the pressure puts you in a much better situation where you grow as it makes sense and you can build a business that's either going to be profitable or sit at profitability or is something that you can later take venture money for when the timing is right. But I think it's all about having control over the, uh, over the growth and um, over the speed at which you do that, uh, where there's just not pressure. And so I, I certainly would, uh, would tend to, to self-finance at this point. It's a great point. I was reading recently in the Wall Street Journal about how valuations, people aren't operating from like, oh, my company is worth X amount and therefore you should invest or finance me accordingly. In fact, it's kind of the opposite I was reading where they're just not willing to put, VCs aren't willing to put their faith in valuations in the same way that they used to. I mean, I'm sure you could probably speak to that better than I can. Yeah. You know, right now in public markets uh, and it's, it's fluctuating daily, but you've seen this kind of compression, what they call a compression of multiples, uh, especially for SaaS companies or software as a service companies where Previously, you were seeing you know, 15, 20, 30 times revenue, where now you're seeing that compressed to, let's say, four to seven times revenue. And so what's that, what that's done is every company that is raising money on the venture side that's non-publicly traded, they've used these publicly traded comps as justification for their valuation. They've said, well, look at this company that's publicly traded that's in my industry. You know, they're getting 30 times revenue, um, so I should too. And not only that, but with venture businesses, typically it's, you know, let's say 30 times their, what they call their run rate or their projected revenue over that period of time, not necessarily their actual revenue. And so now, as you see that, you're looking at a lot of companies that have raised money recently and need to raise more money. But the valuation now, uh, if you comp that against, you know, what they were comping it to before, you know, three to six months before, it's worth probably much less than the last uh, the last valuation of the previous round, uh, and so then you have a couple choices as companies. Either you have to go back to your investors 
uh, try to get them to put more money in at the, at the same valuation they did previously, which is dilutive. Uh, but I think you'll see a lot of investors now that'll say, no, we want some better preferences and uh, we want a lower valuation to put more money in. And so it's, it's going to put companies in a really tough position. Uh, and depending on the stage of the company, uh, you have a lot of founders that also already have pretty small ownership stakes in their companies just due to dilution and raising a lot of capital that you're going to get, that you're going to see get even further diluted down. And I think in those situations, that's a little scary because what's somebody's motivation when they have, you know, one to 5% of a company, um, unless that company is, is enormous, uh, motivation tends to dwindle, uh, I think with dilution. Noah, we've learned a lot about who you are throughout this episode. You're an athlete, you're a venture capitalist, you're a student of the game, you're a traveler. There's a lot of layers to who you are. If you had to venture to guess what the version of you 10 years from now would say to yourself today. I think there's a enjoy the moment would probably be the theme and a, a common theme that at least I've had throughout my life where I'm always looking into the future. And you know, building for building for the future. Um, if only I can get this. If only when this happens, I'll be happy. Uh, once I can do this, I'll relax. And I think it's kind of taking your foot off the gas pedal a little bit, realizing that you know this is this is the time you're going to look back on and be like, wow, that was the happiest time of my life. Not the once you achieve X goal or X outcome. That's just kind of the byproduct. Uh, so I think I think for me, it it really is just kind of take a pause, enjoy the moment, realize that hey, you're in a very good place in your life. And I think I, I tend to look at being content with being complacent and being like, hey, if I'm content with this, then like I've lost because I don't really want more. And I think that's kind of a dangerous, uh, that's a dangerous mentality and just kind of robs you of feeling like everything you've accomplished has, has been worth it to this point and that you get to focus on having a really great life that you have today. Noah, I've certainly enjoyed these moments. This was a blast to catch up with you. Where can everyone find you? Find me on LinkedIn at Noah Bergson. Instagram, same thing. You know, feel free to uh, feel free to reach out if there's anything you have a question about. Can't tell you how much I appreciate your time, man. I know you're a busy guy, but as usual, we make time for the things that we care about, and can't wait to see what you got going for you next, man. Appreciate it, Jonathan. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you liked what you heard, please, again, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe because each one makes a difference. We talk a lot about presence on this show. When I was younger, I always found myself distracted because things didn't interest me. I found I was always focused on something else. Through these episodes, I've come to realize that presence is a common theme among the high performers I interact with. They're usually right where their feet are, or at least aim to be. It's easy to get distracted by the past or questions of the future, but by engaging in tasks that require us to be engaged in the moment, we gain that clarity and in turn, progress. Whether you're making money or recovering from an injury or aspiring to do anything great, it's becoming clear to me that the principles remain the same. Well, that's all for this one. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and until the next one, stay safe, stay strong, stay mindful.